This is a one and all media podcast. Now let's look at this. I think our eyes are gonna be open here. Number one, the nature of sin. Look closely at how verse 11 is worded. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This, friends, is the definition of sin. God says, don't eat from that tree. We say, why? God says, because I said so. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, my name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Vines. As the year progresses, Pastor Jeff wants us to stop and think about what our goals are. Now, this is probably something you did at the beginning of the year, but we want to think about how we're going to reach them. He's looking at Genesis chapter 3 to help us refocus our goals and aims on God. Let's join Pastor Jeff as he starts this new series on recommitment, reawakening, and revival. Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 1 through 13. If you got a Bible turned there, we have to remind ourselves that direction, not intention, determines destination. Every year you have to remind yourself. If you're going to get stronger this year, you're going to have to go to the gym or pump some iron. If you want to get stronger, you have to do something different. If you want to get leaner, probably going to have to eat less or do some cardio, or if you're my age, both, right? <laughs> If you want a better marriage, you're going to have to work on your marriage. Improving anything requires getting on a road that leads to the destination required or desired, right? It it takes something. So there's so much you cannot determine or predict. That's just life. You have no idea what's going to happen to you this year. But that doesn't mean that you have no determining power because you do. And the question that I have for you, what is your loftiest goal this year? What's the highest goal you could ever have? And the second question is, how are you going to get there? Because you won't just slide into it. There has to be some decisions, some choices that you make. Mortimer Adler, who was the editor of Encyclopedia Britannica, reserved the longest article for the topic he called, or we call, God. And he was asked later, why did you give more space in the encyclopedias for God than any other topic? And here's what he said. And I quote, he said, more consequences for thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. In other words, what you believe about God determines everything else in your life this year. Now, I'll go one step further. The greatest pursuit in your life this year should be God because everything else stems from your belief or disbelief, your pursuit or your apathy toward God. Your mental, psychological, emotional health are all a result of what you believe about God. And what is truly interesting is that the aggressive atheists of the past, uh, those who decided that they were going to live in a world apart from God and denial of the existence of God, most of them, now I know not all of them, but a, a, a majority of them, definitely the majority of them, died in gibbering insanity and emotional disintegration. So just from a pragmatic point of view, atheism doesn't work. So when you become unhinged from the creator, 
When you untie yourself from his moorings, you're going to attach your life to something else. And that something else will never deliver what you're looking for. It will not sustain you. It will not anchor you during the course of your life. Only God is big enough to fill your heart, soul, mind. Now think for a moment. Come on with this little journey with me. The possibilities for this new year are numerous. You could renew your body. You could reshape your attitudes. You could resolve to forgive somebody that you need to forgive. You could recommit to your marriage. You could do all that. That's why we call this the year of re. Re what? But the ultimate journey of your life this year, whose destination brings all of these things into perspective and gives you a, a kind of power to overcome whatever it is you're going to face, the ultimate journey is the pursuit of God, and we're calling that a revival. Revival in the sense that you fill your faith again, that you sense the presence of God, that you hear his voice, that you know his closeness. In fact, the uniqueness of the Christian God is exactly this. Only the Christian God is a God of personhood, a God to whom you can relate. It's not an energy or a force or something out there. He is personhood, which means you can relate. You can feel his presence in your life. You can sense his closeness. And with a certain amount of human certainty, you can know that he's always there, always concerned about you, always working, always loving, always having your best interest in mind. And to experience emotional, psychological, even physical and mental health and vitality is, is what it means to know and experience the transcendent. And without that, we're lost. Okay, Jeff, I got you. I hear what you're saying, but I don't feel God. I don't experience God. It's not my fault. I want to, but I just don't, not the way you're talking. And I'll have to confess that the answer is not easy, and I know that, but it is discoverable. And to discover it, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, let's, let's stop and pause. Let's make sure we know what we're doing here. What are we after? We've said for over two years now, we're, we're tired and weary of the status quo of coming to church and just feeling nothing, experiencing nothing, going through the motions, and there's no real life in vitality in my relationship with God. So if we want to have this year, if we want revival to come into our lives, we've got to understand why it doesn't. That's the first move. Why is it that so many of us, myself included, why is it that sometimes we feel so disconnected from God? If we can sort, if we can sort that out, if we can know why we feel disconnected, then maybe somehow we can start to heal. Well, if you go back to Genesis 3, go back to the beginning, you discover it. And it's not that profound. God creates the stuff from which he makes everything else. He creates the universe. He creates us. And then this happens. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse four, you'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You've heard this story before, haven't you? <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, we could spend two months on this passage. We got one weekend. And here's the deal. If you want revival, then the first thing you have to do, and I can't think of a more appropriate message for our time. The first thing you have to do is acknowledge that there's such a thing called sin. The sin is real. And it's not just an offense against each other. It's actually an offense against God. Carl Menninger, who's a psychologist from the Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies, I say that because Carl Menninger is quite liberal. So he's, he's not really a friend of the Christian side of things. But in the 1970s, 70s, he wrote a book that shocked the academic world. The title of the book was this. Think about this coming from a, a far left winger, okay? Whatever happened to sin, he said. Whatever happened to sin. And in the book, he calls for a revival of an awareness of sin, guilt, and shame and repentance. He said, in short, I call for a revival of sin. What would be the good of that, you ask? Why do we need more breast beaters? Why not a no-fault theology? No one to blame. Things just happen. Oops. Alas, he says, and here's why. The assumption that there is sin implies both a possibility and an obligation of intervention. We want to help ourselves and others, and hence sin is the only helpful view when evil appears around us and no one is responsible and no one is guilty. No moral questions are asked. Then there is, in short, nothing to do. So we seek to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequences of my proposal for a revival of the consciousness of sin would not bring more depression, but less. Now, what's he saying? He's saying this. If the world, when the world loses its sense of sin, if you think there's no ultimate objective wrongdoing, if that's your belief that there's no real sin in the world, then you can never hold anybody accountable for anything. Not for racism or oppression or human trafficking or theft or smash and grab in public or in your home. If there's no real if there's no such thing as objective sin, you can never accuse anybody of doing anything wrong. And therefore, you can't intervene. You can't say to them, stop that. Why? And you can have no accountability. You can't say to them, hey, you got to pay for what you've done. In short, no sin, no objective morality, no wrong, no real deterrent to any kind of immoral behavior. So here is this liberal Carl Manager saying that we need a return of sin. We need to return to the idea that there is a higher moral law that you should not violate. If we do that, he says, you'll have less depression, not more of it, because then you'll say, hey, wait a minute. We can fix this with the repentance. You'll have more hope, not less hope, because you'll say things could get better. We need transformation. We could change ourselves and others. But if there is no sin, and if the evolutionary code is the only thing there is, you are what you are and you do what you do because of a particular genetic code, then there's no hope and no power to change and everything is meaningless and hopeless. Deep inside, I want to suggest to you that all of us know there's sin. And what Genesis 3 does quickly, it shows us the nature, the ramifications, and the remedy for this thing called sin. And the reason it's important here 
is because it's the number one revival killer in an individual's life and in the life of a church. Now, let's look at this. I think our eyes are going to be open here. Number one, the nature of sin. Look closely at how verse 11 is worded. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This, friends, is the definition of sin. God says, don't eat from that tree. We say, why? God says, because I said so. Because I commanded. When I was in Hobart, Tasmania, just a few weeks ago, I spoke to a group of high schoolers. One young high schooler, and I would guess he's on the upper end. I'm thinking he's more like 18 or 19, but it was supposed to be a group of high schoolers. And he walked up to me and he asked me this question. He says, you know what? I just don't get it. What's wrong with two people of the same sex marrying each other? What's the big harm? Now, there are plenty of social arguments you can bring to bear on a topic like this, but notice his assumption. His assumption is this. If I can't see the damage it does to a person, society, or culture, then it must be acceptable. If it doesn't hurt anyone, then why is it wrong? Now, as a pastor, I can tell you those are the arguments I've heard all my life. What's wrong with sex before marriage? I mean, it's good that we hook up before we say I do. Then we can determine whether or not we want to hook up with this person for the rest of our lives. What's wrong with living together before marriage? I mean, financially, it's a smart thing. We can save money, save for the future, then one day we'll get married. Young men, what's wrong with pornography? I'm not hurting anybody. It's in the privacy of my own home. What's wrong with being unequally yoked to somebody who doesn't share my passion for Jesus? What's wrong with that? I don't see any damage. The answer God gives you in verse 11 is this, because I said so. Because I'm God and you are not. I'm omniscient, you're not. I see all the angles, you don't. And humanity's response typically has been this. First, we say something like this. Well, if I can't see the reason, then I'm not going to obey. If I can't see the reason, I'm not going to obey. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, what does it say? She's saying what? I know I'm not supposed to do this, but it looks good. It honestly tastes good. And there's obviously some wisdom here. I don't know how she got that from whatever the fruit was. It fails to understand that God sees all the psychological, physiological, emotional, and societal impact in the long term. In the long term. You don't know what's going to happen in 50, 100 years to culture, to society. God does. Second, you'll have people come along and we'll say, did God really say that? Oh, this is very popular in our day. Verse 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We are living in a time of what I would call hermeneutical gymnastics. Now, gymnastics is what? It's when people do all kinds of twists and turns and all kinds of acrobatic feats. Today, more than ever, because of the internet, no matter what behavior you're engaging in, you can find a theologian somewhere to justify it. It's called hermeneutic gymnastics. They will take Greek words and Hebrew words. They'll twist and turn and jump up and down and twist around, hoping ultimately that they fall on their feet. But there's always an audience for somebody that wants to read what you're saying. And they don't really want to investigate it. They just want some pastor or theologian to tell them, hey, we've believed for 2,000 years this is wrong, but hey, it's really right. And it's as old as Genesis 3.3. Did God really say that? Did he say that? 
There's nothing so vulgar left in modern culture that you can't find a professor from somewhere to justify it. One of my favorite quotes, I can't remember who said it. It wasn't me. See, the Bible says that sin is not just breaking the rule of God, but sin is putting yourself in the place of God where you start determining what is right and what is wrong. You allow culture to tell you what is right and what is wrong. And you question the rule of God because you can't see the harm. You know how many times as a pastor I've heard this? I just can't see how something that feels so right could be so wrong. Well, of course you can't because you're not God. And by the way, right there is the foundation of sin. Immediately, when you know the Bible teaches something, but in your heart you say, I can't understand. You know, this just cannot be wrong because it feels so right then and there you take the place of God. And what happens when Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3? The Lord God, verse 23, banished him from the Garden of Eden. So there's a relational fracture. No more hanging out with God, no more walking with God. Do you see? You see? When you live willfully as God and you determine what's right and wrong and you still want to experience God and feel his presence, it doesn't work that way. What does all this mean? Number one, the foundation of sin is playing God. Two, the ramification of sin is alienation. Notice in verse 13, the Bible says, cursed is the ground because of you. Work is not cursed. Or I should say work itself is not a curse. Now, this is another sermon for another time, but there was work before the fall. Work is good. But our work that we're involved in is cursed. Now, what, what does that mean? Do you remember uh, Salieri, his problem in Amadeus? Salieri could conceive of the, this incredible music, but he couldn't get it out of his head onto the page. He could not compose it. He could see it, but he can't produce it. And that is the human experience. Sin curses our ability to turn our conceptions into reality. It curses our creativity. It makes us aspire to be and to do what God has wired us to be and to do, but we keep facing these constant obstacles. Anybody who runs a business will tell you this is true. So the farmer has to deal with insects and drought and hard soil. A business person has to deal with people who lie, people who won't return his or her phone calls, stealing, lying, cheating, all of it. Our work is cursed, but it's primarily because there's sin in the world and there's alienation. Alienation between us and ourselves and us and others. It cuts us off from ourselves, internal frustration. Second, it cuts us off from God. Verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Now, for years, you look at this text and I've, there's all kinds of humor in here. Notice I'm avoiding it. One, because I'm not very funny. And two, I don't have time for humor. If I'm gonna get this sermon done, there's no time for humor. I want you to think about something. If you have a friend and you've got a relationship with this person, and you enjoy spending time with them. But over the course of your friendship, you start to resent your friend, and you resent the friend because you believe all your problems are related to your friendship with this person. And if that's true, not only will you start to resent the friend, ultimately you will end the relationship, right? Now, this is a subtle yet powerful reality for the Christ follower. Because Christ followers have an assumption that God owes us a good life. I know you've heard me say that before, but you have this assumption that God owes you a good life. 
Therefore, you hardly ever look inwardly when your world's falling apart. Why did my kids turn out that way? Why is my marriage in disarray? Why did I lose my job? Why am I having heart problems? Why am I so anxious, depressed, and frustrated? Why does no one want to hang out with me? Well, it could be that your kids didn't turn out the way they should because you had no true spiritual discipline in your life or theirs. Now, I'm not saying it's always the answer. Because I told you it's not always your fault. Adam and Eve had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as parents, and they still blew it, right? But we're not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why is my marriage in disarray? Probably because you abandoned your spouse emotionally. Why did I lose my job? Maybe you're lazy. Why am I having heart problems? Because you put bacon on everything. You put bacon on bacon. Why am I so anxious, depressed, frustrated? Maybe because you envy everyone. You're so jealous. You're just eat up with bitterness. Why does nobody want to hang out with me? Maybe you're high maintenance. It's just too much grace required. Okay? It's true, isn't it? When you internally blame God for all your ailments, the natural result will be alienation from him, not a closer relationship with him. When you refuse to acknowledge that some of your problems are because of the sin problem you have, if you refuse to do that, your problems aren't going to, your life's not going to get better, but worse. And there's going to be, there's going to be an underlying hatred for God because you feel like he should do more than he's doing. And the alienation is exhausting. Again, I told you this is a, this is a month load of sermons, but let me show you another alienation that we men and women forget. It's social alienation. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what this is saying is that because men, let's start with the men, we'll get to the women, with the men, you are wired in such a way to rule and to subdue creation. But a fracture has happened in your life because you're alienated to some degree because of sin from God. Because you're alienated to some degree from God, now you don't rule and subdue creation like you were originally designed to do, so now you look for something else to rule and subdue. And sometimes men will turn to their wife and their families and they will be frustrated that they can't rule and subdue there, so I'm going to rule and subdue here. And they have no idea what it is to be a servant leader. In their mind, they're the boss of this family, and I'm going to rule it because they're frustrated. What do wives do? Women, on the other hand, sometimes make a god out of their husband. When the Bible says your desire will be for your husband, I've had a lot of men say, well, I know I can't trust the Bible now. You got it? You got it? But what the word actually means, there's two sides to it, and I've dealt with one in the past, and I don't want to go into that side, but one side of it is simply this. Rather than desiring God in the ultimate divine romance, you look to your husband to, to be a pseudo-savior, and you've cast all these projections on your husband to save you rather than ultimately pursuing God. First of all, no man can live up to that. And so there's this inner turmoil and tension. Sin takes something that's good, like gender roles, and makes an idol out of them. So that men rule over rather than lead, servant lead, and women desire their husband 
and depend on their husband for their own personal self-worth rather than placing their ultimate hope and security in God. I don't know how many times I've heard a young girl say, if I could just find a good man, all my problems will be solved. Oh, man. They have no idea, do they? Your problems are just beginning. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. What sin does, it takes something good like marriage, love, relationships, even children, and makes a God out of them. And you have an idol in your life. And all of these gods and false idols means that there is alienation between you and the real God. Because these idols can never deliver, no matter how good they are. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.